You are listening to the Sermons Podcast of First Baptist Church, Mount Washington. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 4. In our study of uh, Daniel, Daniel chapter 2, we encountered the God who reveals, that is speaking of Nebuchadnezzar's dream, Chapter 3, last week we talked about the God who rescues as he rescued Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Chapter 4, we encounter the God who rules. That is, not just the kingdom of heaven, but the kingdom of men. It's a long chapter, and I'll be reading through verse 28 this morning. So let's begin. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are His signs, how mighty His wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and His dominion endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. At last, Daniel came in before me, he who was named Belshazzar after the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream, saying, O Belshazzar, chief of the magicians, Because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and that no mystery is too difficult for you. Tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong and its top reached to heaven. And it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beast of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heaven lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, chop down the tree. And lop off its branches, strip off its leaves, and scatter its fruit. Let the beast flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze, amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beast and the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's, and let a beast mind be given to him, and let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men 
and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw, and you, O Belshazzar, tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Then Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belshazzar answered and said, My Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. The tree you saw, which grew and became strong so that its top reached to heaven and it was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant and which was food for all, under which beast of the field found shade and in whose branches the birds of the heavens lived. It is you. O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven, and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field, and let him be wet with the dew of heaven, And let his portion be with the beast of the field till seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High, which has come upon my lord the king, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beast of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox. You shall be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time shall pass over you. Tell you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word this morning, and as always, we pray for your help and understanding and applying these things. May our ears be opened and our eyes be opened to both hear and see, Lord, the work that you want to do in us and May you have your will in our lives. I pray that you would use me as your servant. I pray that you would increase and I would decrease and your word would go forth. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Chapter 4 here is kind of the last cycle of events in which God is dealing with Nebuchadnezzar. And uh, I think that is what it's about. It has similarities to chapter 2, and that the story is <clears throat> centers around a dream that's given by God to him. But unlike chapters 2 and 3, Daniel and his companions are not in danger, and they're really not the focus here. The focus is on the way in which God deals with Nebuchadnezzar. And in fact, the parts of this chapter are written at least in, as a first-hand ac- account from Nebuchadnezzar himself. 
Uh, One commentator described this chapter as kind of a primitive press release uh, to his people. It's an edict issued by King Nebuchadnezzar from his royal palace, and it has a a dual purpose to it, two things I think that he's trying to accomplish. One is that he's trying to assure those who are in his kingdom, uh, the citizens of Babylon, that they are not being ruled by a crazy man. Uh, And then secondly, is a testimony to the sovereignty of God, of heaven over all. Now concerning that latter one, this has been a major theme of Daniel from the beginning. That God is sovereign over the kingdoms of, of men. In chapter 1, He is sovereign, that He gives wisdom to His faithful servants uh, to live holy lives. Chapter 2, to understand dreams. Chapter 3, it's God's sovereignty that preserves Daniel, and, or his friends rather, uh, from the fiery furnace. Chapter 4, His sovereignty here is being confessed by a pagan king. It begins, verses 1 through 3, Nebuchadnezzar Praising God for His sovereignty, the chapter ends, verses 34 through 37, with Him praising His sovereignty. Now, concerning the first thing, it was, it, it's not hard to imagine that His country must have been buzzing with rumors about the extraordinary thing that happened to uh, King Nebuchadnezzar. Losing his mind, in effect, uh, becoming like an ox, the Scripture says, out in the field, in the pasture, grazing uh, like a, a wild animal for seven seasons, we're told. It's an extraordinary story, and you can imagine that the rumors were buzzing around the kingdom. What in the world is going on? Who is, who is our leader in all of this? Uh, I've got three headings that I, I hope will guide us this morning. First, We begin with the gift of God's servant. The gift of God's servant. I'm speaking the gift that Daniel was to Nebuchadnezzar. In verse 4, Nebuchadnezzar recounts having another terrifying dream. And just like in chapter 2, he summons all of the wise men of Babylon to come to make known to him the interpretation of it. But Unlike chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar goes ahead and shares with them the content of the dream. But the outcome is still the same. Uh, All of the paid professionals, if you will, verse 7, could not interpret the dream. Davis comments here, and I think correctly, one wonders if fear partly explains their inability. Surely they could divine that the dream suggested something calamitous, likely for Nebuchadnezzar. Perhaps they thought it safer for their heads not to bear the ill news. But nevertheless, we run into the same dead-end cul-de-sac that we ran into in chapter 2, that the, the failure of paganism to be able to shed light on Uh, darkness, if you will. And that's where Daniel comes in, verse 8. At last, Daniel came in before me. And here is is God's gift to the pagan king. Here is Daniel who is there to speak truth to the king, to shine light in the midst of the darkness. Daniel represents the kindness of God to Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar trusts Daniel. He shares with him his dream. It's found there in verses 10 through 12. Uh, You can see, he says, about a tree in the midst of the earth. Its height was great. It grew strong, became strong, grew to the top of heaven, visible to the end of the whole earth. 
Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, food for all, the beast of the field finding shade under it, the birds of the heavens living in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. It must have been uh, an incredible picture of, of a tree in the barren, desert-like area of Babylon. Such a tree would have been this magnificent kind of sight. It would have been the grandest tree the world had ever seen. And you wonder, as Nebuchadnezzar had that dream, if, if he wasn't already thinking, does it represent me? But then the dream turns to a nightmare. He sees a messenger from heaven who comes down and gives an order for the tree to be chopped down, stripped of its branches, leaves, and fruit. And it's, it's not to be uprooted, but, but, uh, but it, that is allowed, it's to be allowed to live. It's to be a stump in the field, he says. And you notice here the, the tenderness and truthfulness of Daniel's reply. First, his reply was marked by compassion as he interpreted He's He's, Daniel's both appalled and alarmed, and he wishes that Nebuchadnezzar's dream, uh, the results of that would fall on Nebuchadnezzar's enemies. Verse 19, my Lord, the dream, may it be for those who hate you and the interpretation for your enemies. He spoke with compassion to the king. His, his reply also was marked by candor. He, he doesn't hold back speaking the truth, does he? Verse 22, that magnificent tree, he tells Nebuchadnezzar, it is you. And you're about to be brought as low as a man has ever been brought. What's described there, verses 24 through 26, it really is something. Verse 25, you shall be driven from among men. Your dwelling shall be with the beast of the field. You're going to be made to eat grass like an ox. What in the world? You're going to be wet with the dew of heaven. Seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. What a hard message that must have been. And Daniel obviously loved Nebuchadnezzar, but he probably was cringing as he spoke this word. He speaks not only with compassion and candor, but he offers counsel, verse 27. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Here's what he tells him to do. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities, by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. He says, perhaps with repentance, Nebuchadnezzar, you can postpone the inevitable results that, that are coming, or, or maybe even, who knows, maybe God will relent, just like He did in Jonah's preaching to the Ninevites. You, you see, all of this is a remarkable grace of God to Nebuchadnezzar. God is being so gracious to him. He's being gracious to him in the fact that he gives him this dream, this interpretation. He didn't have to do that. He's being gracious in the fact that he gives him direction on what to do. Verse 27, break off your sins. God gives him opportunity to repent. Verse 29 tells us 12 months he gives him to respond to this dream. All of this comes through Daniel to him. Important that we stop and think about 
what a huge gift it is when the God of heaven makes known to you His Word, even if that Word is a severe word in your life. One of the verses that I memorized young was Proverbs 25, 11, speaking of apples of gold. A word aptly spoken is the way I learned it. It's like apples of gold and settings of silver. Sometimes it comes through your morning Bible reading. Haven't you experienced this before where you come and your soul is dry and you're thirsting like a deer panting for streams of water. You're desperate in the midst of your circumstances and God gives you in that moment at just the right time life-giving words that you needed to hear. Maybe that word of God came through a friend or it came through a, a godly parent or maybe through a sermon. Perhaps even it was a word of correction to you. And when you first heard that word, you kicked at that. You, you responded, but then later looking back on it now, you know that that word saved your life from the destruct, destructive, sinful path that you were on. Aren't you thankful that God gives words of life to us like this? Maybe you were on the brink of despair and the word of the Lord came to you and breathed new hope into your life. Brothers and sisters, we should praise God for his word today. Psalm 19 says it revives the soul, it makes wise the simple, it rejoices the heart, it enlightens the eyes, it endures forever. Thank God for His servants whom He places in our lives often at just the right times to speak to us. Godly parents, beloved friends, faithful Sunday school teachers and pastors. Let's recognize what a gift it is and what a mercy of God it is that His Word would come to us and save us from the destructive paths that we're on. What a gift of God this was to Nebuchadnezzar. Let's think a little bit more about that word, though, to him. It's the theme of our second heading, that is, the truth of God's sovereignty. And this really is, I think, the, the heart of the passage. It's, it, whenever you're reading passages like this, always look for things that are repeated. And in this case, it's repeated three times for us. The truth, the message. Verse 17, verse 25, and verse 32. Verse 17 says, this sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end, here it is, that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom He will and sets over it the lowliest of men. It's repeated in verse 25. Speaking of the judgment on Nebuchadnezzar the last seven seasons, but it says, till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom He will. It's repeated again, verse 32. Until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom He will. Three times it's mentioned so that we won't miss the point. We've said this theme, the kingdom of God, the sovereignty of God, is Daniel's central message. But I would... I would point out to you today, it's not just the central message of Daniel, it's the, really the central message of the entire Bible. 
It really is around this particular thing. All men, not just King Nebuchadnezzar and other kings, must come to know that the God of heaven, that the Most High, rules in this world. He is sovereign. This is what makes God, God. In verse 17, we notice some of the characteristics of the sovereignty. It's a present sovereignty. Notice, in which the Most High rules in the present tense. This is not just like chapter 2 about a kingdom that is coming. It is about a kingdom that is now. Ronald Wallace writes, God rules down here, not just merely up there. He rules not just the spiritual, but the but, but a present rule. He's ruling right now. He's king right now, he's saying. It's a physical sovereignty. The Most High rules the kingdom of men. He, he rules not just the spiritual, but the physical. He, he rules people. It's a particular sovereignty in which he gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. Both kingdoms and kings are under the control of God. He gives this authority to whomever he wills. He's sovereign. And there's no other truth that humbles the pride of men more than this. That He is God and that, that we're not. And in many times, many ways, it's a litmus test that, that indicates where we are with our Lord in our spirituality. Because no truth is more likely to evoke either humility in which we humble ourselves or rebellion than this truth about the sovereignty of God. It cuts right to the heart of our sinful natures. Surely the battle every day that we live in, isn't it? Will God be on the throne of our hearts today or will we be there? Right? Who will be the, your king? Who will be your Lord? And, and, and make no mistake about this. I think this is clear that God will not be your Savior unless He is your Lord. That's why Daniel's counsel in verse 27 is so important when he boldly tells Nebuchadnezzar, break off your sins. Break off your sins. You're rebelling against the most high God. You are thumbing your nose at this God. And you're about to come under His judgment. Are you humbling yourself in repentance today before this God? Or are you hardening yourself in rebellion against Him and your sin. Now, the sad testimony of Nebuchadnezzar as he doesn't hear and heed this word. And it seems like so many today, he mis mistook the merciful delay of, the God, of God's judgment to him as a sign that perhaps he could ignore it. According to verse 29, 12 months passed by after this dream. I wonder how many days he ended the day and think, ha, huh, I got through it. I, God's not going to judge. It must not be true. Look, look, look at me. I'm still reigning. 365 days of opportunity to repent. And then we're told, in a moment, everything that God revealed to him in the dream happened. Verse 30, one day he's walking on the roof of his palace, and a moment of great pride, he says, 
Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? And the Bible says, while those words were still in his mouth, immediately the judgment of God struck him. Verse 33, immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men, ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagles' feathers and his nails were like birds' claws. A lot has been written about this, trying to link Nebuchadnezzar's Uh, mental illness, if you will, with mental illnesses today. And there are some recorded cases of documented examples of this happening in more modern times, but this is not the Bible's concern here because clearly this sickness is a direct result of the judgment of God on his life, isn't it? It's been promised to him in this dream, and it happens to him. It's not a naturally occurring sickness from living in a fallen world. And and it makes us think, at least we should pause and remind ourselves, that in the Bible, insanity, insanity is often associated with pride and willful rebellion against God. You think about the story of the prodigal son, which many of us have heard. And you remember that time when he found himself in the pig pen and he came to his senses, didn't he? He had to come to his senses, it says, because he'd been acting like a fool. We think of the demoniac, uh, Mark chapter 5, whom no one could bind with chains and keep any clothes on him. And he lived in a graveyard terrorizing people. And you remember, only in Christ could he be restored in his right mind, the miracle tells us. Or you remember Romans chapter 1, which we've come to many times, where God gave idolaters up to, he says, Paul says, a depraved mind, to futile thinking, that all kinds of, of perversity and evil and eventually death. It's pictured over and over again. The message is that it is insanity to rebel against this sovereign God. Insanity. All sin is insanity. And we should remind ourselves, nothing is more bizarre than sin. When we're being tempted, when we're, 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 we're tempted to veer off the path, all sin is insanity. As our world continues to try to normalize sinful behaviors which are abhorrent to God, we need to remember this. And let us sound the alarm. The scripture is so clear. The wages of sin is is death. The broad way of sin leads to destruction, Jesus said. The soul that sins shall die, Ezekiel preached. It is the folly of follies to rebel against a holy, sovereign God and His Word. Nebuchadnezzar is a picture of of the insanity of this, of rebelling against it. He is driven out of the palace, we are told, and into the pasture where he lives like an animal. It was the judgment of God on him. 
Thank goodness that's not the end of the story. It brings us to our third heading, which is the power of God's salvation. The final verses uh, speak of one more mercy of God to Nebuchadnezzar. Each of the uh, that mercy was implied in each of the key verses that we looked at a moment ago, verse 17, verse 25, verse 32. It's found in that one little small word. It's the word until or till. For example, here's verse 32. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until, until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. In other words, this judgment was temporary upon Nebuchadnezzar. It was in God's mercy meant to warn him, to keep him from eternal judgment, to turn his heart back to, to or turn his heart to God. The tree, remember, was not uprooted. It, it was just cut down to the stump. It, in other words, in God's mercy, there's hope. There's hope here. So verses 34 through 37, Nebuchadnezzar gives testimony of how God restored him. Now, I'll tell you, there's a debate about this of whether King Nebuchadnezzar is really converted here or not. And I suspect we won't really know for sure until we get to heaven and find out if he's there. But it will be interesting to go and see that, amen? Well, I think it will be interesting. I tend to think that he was saved. And uh, I base it just walking through this text. Verse 34, his testimony, At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, praised and honored Him who lives forever. Notice the chain of events there. He lifts his eyes to heaven, to God, and then his reason returned. His repentance, I think, here, I think that's what this is, is involving this retracing of the steps of his rebellion. In his sin, in his pride, he acknowledges he'd lost perspective. He'd lost his senses. He'd lost his mind. But now it has been restored to him, he says. He confesses the sovereignty of God, which is the point of the chapter, verse 34. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And He does according to His will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay His hand or say to Him, what have you done? It's a confession of sovereignty. The, the God, uh, God begins to restore His life, verse 36. At the same time, my reason returned to me. The glory of my kingdom, my majesty, and splendor returned to me. Sin had brought shame, but repentance begins to mark a restoration in His life. Verse 37, Nebuchadnezzar confesses the truthfulness and righteousness of God. He says, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, for all His works are right. And his ways are just. And, and then he recognizes that God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. He says, and those who walk in pride, he is able. God is able to humble, he says. I think there's a pattern of, of saving grace. Peter's message in 1 Peter 5 says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. God gives grace to the humble. 
it's not just Nebuchadnezzar's salvation that is spoken of here. I think there's an important message for the exiled people of God, for Daniel and his friends. When the prophet Isaiah, years earlier, warned the people of God that this judgment was coming, this exile was coming to them, he spoke of it like this. He spoke of cities lying in ruin, houses left deserted, fields ravaged. And he spoke of Israel. This is Isaiah 6, 11 through 13. He spoke of Israel being cut down to where only a stump remained. That was the picture that he gave them of what was coming, this judgment. And I'm sure that's how they felt. Here they are now. These things have happened and they're in exile in Babylon. But incredible news here. I wonder if Solomon's message was ringing in their ears in 2 Chronicles 7. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. If Nebuchadnezzar could be forgiven after all and restored when he humbled himself from being in this kind of state, then perhaps they too could be forgiven and restored. What great hope this must have been for them. And doesn't this have application for us today too? You look around at our church you look around perhaps at your life and you think to yourself, it seems like that all that's left is a stump. A stump. Stumps don't look very promising, do they? They picture what is desolate and what is defunct, what's been demolished. And yet such a strange thing because... Strange things can happen around stumps. Listen to what Isaiah went on to say. Isaiah chapter 11. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Isaiah reminds the people of God in exile that we're like a stump. <laughs> that God in His great mercy was going to bring forth a Savior from that stump. Can I encourage you this morning? Don't be in despair of sometimes the dead look of things. Don't be put off by the stump because apparently there's been many times in the history of God's people where things look like they've been whacked down to nothing. But here's the good news. Our God is able to bring life from a stump, you see. That includes our church. That includes you, Christian. You felt like you've been whacked down by sin and suffering. In chapter 2, we were reminded that our hopes lie in a stone kingdom that's going to come. 
Here in chapter 4, our hope is in a stump kingdom. That our Savior came from a stump. And this Savior is able to give new life. Here's what our Savior promised in Mark 4 about His kingdom. He said it's like a grain of mustard seed which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds of the earth, yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants. It puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. Our, our application today is that we need to keep our eyes on the shoot of Jesse, the shoot of the stump of Jesse, who is our Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's keep our eyes on Him, church. Lord, we thank You for Your word today. We pray that it, through it, Lord, and through Your Spirit, that You would have Your will and Your way in, in our lives. And that, Lord, no matter what is going on, no matter the appearance of things in our lives, we know that we are but a stump of people and have been from the beginning. But, Lord, you have brought a Savior through that stump. And your kingdom is continuing to grow and grow and fill the earth. And so, Lord, let us be encouraged by that today and let us ever keep our eyes on Jesus our Savior. And this morning, as we think about uh, what we have heard, we rejoice that your word comes to us in desperate times. We are, are thankful, Lord, and reminded that all sin is insanity before you and that we need to submit ourselves to you. And so help us to do that today. And if there's someone here, Lord, that doesn't know you, we pray that today would be the day of salvation. They would, their eyes would be open to see Jesus, our Savior. They would turn from that broad path that leads to destruction and look to the narrow way who is Christ and come to Him in faith and repentance and be saved. Help them to do that today, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast. I'm Pastor Jason Clark. And if you don't have a church home, I want to personally invite you to First Baptist Mount Washington. We're striving to be word-centered, gospel-focused, and community-minded. Learn more about our church and our meeting times from our website, fbcmw.org.